When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Derek Bodner, longtime friend of the show and 76ers insider for Philadelphia Magazine. He also covers the NBA draft for USA Today and has done a lot of work for Draft Express in the past. And I wanted to talk with him about the Sixers. Had a massive year. We go through a lot of different topics. Joel Embiid, how to figure out their center situation, the philosophy moving forward, a lot of different topics. We talked for about an hour and a half. Really wonderful conversation. And this week's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. You can go to www.blueapron.com slash realgm for three meals free, including free shipping on your first purchase. And you can also thank Audible, the absolutely incredible audio service. I'm a huge fan. You go to www.audible.com slash try now, and you can get a free month trial along with a free audiobook. I'm a huge fan of their service. So appreciate both of them for sponsoring it. Appreciate you for listening. And I think you will really enjoy this conversation. We have had conversations, I believe, over the last couple of years about the Sixers, a team that fascinates me and has for a long time. This time in the year, the last couple of years, it has been talking about, oh, who are they looking at in the draft? To who could be interesting, wonder what's going on with the pick protection of the Lakers pick. That part's still true. But other than that, this is a totally different conversation to have, and I'm very excited to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, in years past, it's always been, you know, it'll get really interesting when they finally get that number one pick or when the Lakers pick conveys or when Joel Embiid is finally able to take the court. But it's always been, there's always been that wait. Uh, and it feels like this year, all of those decisions to kind of make a move and realize it may not pay off right away, it finally feels like some of those are starting to pay off. You've got Joel Embiid taking the court and really playing better than I think anybody could have expected him to. You have Ben Simmons, even though he hasn't played, rather than waiting on lottery odds and waiting on that 25% chance of getting the number one pick, or in last year's case, I believe it was about a 29% chance because of that pick swap. But now he's a real tangible player. And some of these bets that you made that maybe you didn't have the certainty at the beginning, now you're starting to see some return for a relatively risky or at least uncertain start to that rebuild. So it's certainly a lot lot of fun for Sixers fans. It's a lot of fun for NBA fans. And to watch this develop is going to be really interesting, interesting down the line. And that, of course, starts with uh, with Joel Embiid. Let's start with Joel Embiid's defense because it hasn't been the biggest surprise of this season. There are a lot of things that are surprising, but when a player has two, two and a half years off, and we never really got to see with that Kansas system everything that he could be defensively, I expected it to take a little while to come around. And not only in terms of his instincts, but his reactions in terms of covering distance once the reaction has already happened have been far better than I anticipated, especially early, but maybe overall. I mean, I just think he's been better defensively than pretty much anyone could have hoped for. And like you said, it's it's not only effort and athleticism and physical tools, but reaction, the way he reads plays, the way he processes the information. It's just, it's at a level 
that you don't expect a rookie to be at, whether that's a 19, 20-year-old rookie like we're accustomed to seeing nowadays or a 22-year-old rookie like he is because he sat out those two years. I mean, defense is something that for young players, it usually had, it's, it's a usually very steep learning curve. And for him, it just seems like it isn't. And even when you look at his fouls, a lot of his fouls are offensive. They're charges and, 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 and whatnot. He, I mean, he's, he's getting into foul trouble, but it's maybe not quite as bad as it would look like on first blush. Uh, it is the difference in the team defensively when he goes to the bench. Even when he's going to the bench with another good defensive player filling in for him, it's still noticeable. You know, he completely changes the opponent's game plan. That's That's so rare for a young player to do. That ties in with something that you and I actually got into a discussion on on Twitter over last week, which is the idea that the Sixers have still been solid defensively with Joel Embiid on the floor, despite still turning the ball over way too much. And generally speaking, that can be a death knell for a defense because those are the best looks. There is a difference sometimes between on-ball and off-ball, like live ball and dead ball turnovers. I haven't gone through that with the Sixers yet, but there is a lot of room to grow in that capacity but also in the capacity of personnel. While the Sixers are are making it work right now, I would expect that overall, the two years from now, 76ers outside of Embiid will have better defensive personnel than they have right now. I would hope you have a better defensive point guard than, or shooting guard than Nick Stauskas. Yeah, I would would say that's fair. Um, I mean, when you look at where they rank defensively, you know, synergy and the play type data that then NBA.com, you know, piggybacks off of, at one point last week, or I really think about two days ago, they were tied for the fourth-ranked half-court defense in the league, which, again, you're talking about when, I think you mentioned it, but maybe the highest percentage of their, or one of the highest percentages in the league of the opponent's possessions comes in transition. But when they're able to get their defense set, really match up like they want to, they've been a, a pretty downright dominant defense. The only the only teams ahead of them, I think, at the time, and it was I think it was like a three-way tie for four, so it was a couple teams really close. But the only teams really ahead of them were Golden State, San Antonio and Utah. So I think they're competing. And that's even with the fact that Embiid's missed so much time. And I mean, we've said when he's on the court there, they have a defensive efficiency of the best defense in the league. But that's even with all the time he's missed. That's even with, you know, the fact that they played Oak Four as a backup center for a, a good portion of the early season. And he is uh, he struggles on that end of the court. That's with guys like Sergio Rodriguez playing a lot and Nick Stauskas playing a lot. And even Ersan Ilyasova, who makes the right rotations and will take some charges, but is certainly at a physical advantage. They are overcoming a lot to have, you know, the fourth ranked half court defense in the league. And it's, it's, you put a lot of, of credit to that for Joel Embiid. I'm also fascinated as I have been since they drafted him with the idea of the defensive possibilities with Ben Simmons, not because Ben Simmons is a great defender in any, in any way, though he can defensive rebound. But because of the creative flexibility, if you have somebody, if he gets to the point where he can run the offense, where he can initiate with what you can do at the point guard spot when you don't need that sort of skill set, allows the Sixers, depending on availability and everything else, there aren't that many guys that fit this perfectly. If they wanted to, they could go with a more offensively limited, defensively capable point guard nominally and help that even more than what they have right now with TJ. Well, not only that, but you could you could start putting out some big wing lineups. I mean, they've... This isn't something you'd want to do for 30 minutes a night, but they had a couple of weeks ago, they had Robert Covington defending Isaiah Thomas and holding his own against him. And he really used his length well and he could fight over screens. You could start throwing out lineups where, you know, your your perimeter is maybe Gerald Henderson and Robert Covington. You can really start getting creative because Covington has developed into that kind of versatile defender. And because Ben Simmons does have that kind of unique flexibility where he can run an offense 
even though he's defending the three or the four spot. So yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of ways they can go in the offseason. I mean, we're talking about lineups now that aren't, you know, you might have some flexibility, but they're still probably not optimal. But you have a lot of flexibility now in who you can target in the draft, who you can target as a trade target, who you can go then go out and target as maybe a free agent who is overlooked because maybe he doesn't have the point guard skills you would want and maybe he's trapped where he can only defend the point guard spot. But because you now have a point guard in a power forward's body, you have a lot more flexibility where he is more valuable to your team than he would be somewhere else. It is going to be really interesting once they get Ben Simmons back. And by the way, not only that, yeah, he's not the greatest defender in the world, but he does make plays defensively. He will force turnovers. He will get them out on the break. He will grab a rebound and push the ball. So while he his focus might not be there and maybe his technique or his consistency isn't there, he will help them make plays. And really outside of Embiid and Noel, that's something they struggle with right now as well. It's a great point. I'm excited to see how they approach this challenge because the ideal is actually a player who can succeed on ball and off ball because you want somebody who, depending on how you want to do it, Kyrie Irving is a great example of this. Like Kyrie Irving is very good off ball for a point guard and he's talented on ball. I mean, he sometimes he, he gets wrapped up in his shots, but he's also one of the best tough, tough shot makers in the league. So that's one kind of archetype. And then there are other ones as well. I mean, you could go with even Contavious Caldwell Pope is a guy that Nate Duncan and I have talked about before, who's basically strictly off ball. He does a little bit of creation, but not a lot. And players like Markel Fultz, not necessarily, the Sixers might actually be out of his range yeah. now with the, with the winning they're doing. There are a few players who can thread that needle. Lonzo Ball maybe could as well. And they might not be available. And what I like about the Sixers is that they have this flexibility. You have a platonic ideal of what you would want in that kind of a spot, but things less than that will work out. You just don't get everything you want. You you keep on working from a front office to get the best possible combination of talent you can. Yeah. And I mean, that was, you know, we we in Philadelphia spent a lot of time debating Sam Hinkie, especially now that, you know, some of the returns are starting to turn out positive and that faction of the fan base is getting a little bit more vocal. But I think where a lot of people get bogged down is, you know, yeah, he might have missed on, not missed on Noel, because I think Noel for a six pick is still good value, even though you're, you're probably going to have to trade him for less in market. Um, yeah, especially because that draft was terrible. That draft was terrible, and you, you didn't know a generational center was coming in the next draft. You had no way, to, way of really predicting that. Uh, at that time, when, when they made that pick, I think Joel Embiid had just gotten off of his junior varsity season. Or no, that would have been his varsity season. Apologies. But, I mean, we get lost maybe in you would have wanted more from the 2013 and 2015 draft. Certainly, you, you missed on Giannis. I mean, a lot of people missed on Giannis. Porzingis, you missed on... But I think one of the big parts, what really made them special, and we can really, you know, certainly we'll see how their drafting was in five years down the road. But I think really the big part of their plan was this kind of optionality where you could get your star player, you get a second star player in Ben Simmons, and you've now really decoupled, you know, your your, your future, you can improve and improve beyond the Markel Fultz, which like you said, would be a perfect, perfect addition but you still have that Kings pick swap and a Lakers pick. And now you have flexibility and roster flexibility. You have draft pick flexibility. You have cap space flexibility. There is a, they, they are in a prime position to build a team around what looks like now two real big building blocks. And I agree with you. Just the fact, the sheer uniqueness of the two pieces they do have, it, it should make it really easy to then move through the next phases of this rebuild. 
Let's talk a little bit about Joel Embiid's offense before we we get on to some of the other stuff. There's a, there are a million things we can discuss with the Sixers, but his efficiency for the volume of possessions that he has is really impressive and bodes well for me for a player who can get more efficient once they get better talent around him. Yeah, and I mean, right now, there I, there's really two things you're looking at with his efficiency. I mean, I think he's shooting like maybe 47%. That's good. That's not incredible. What he's buoyed by is an incredible free throw rate. And I think that is something that's not necessarily going to go away. And it might go down a little bit. I think his free throw rate is probably up near 60% at this point. That's probably tough to sustain, but it's always going to be high. I think he's always going to be among the league leaders, at least for high usage players, because he draws so much attention near the hoop. Uh, I mean, anytime he rolls to the basket, anytime he cuts off the ball, anytime he has a deep post position, he's going to get double and triple teamed and probably fouled. And he really does a good job seeking out that contact and playing through it. What's dragging down his efficiency then and why most of his advanced metrics offensively aren't necessarily as good is his turnover rate. And I mean, that's something that I think when you look at him and look, we it's amazing. He picked up basketball, organized basketball, maybe like five years and two months ago. The overall number of games he played in, I mean, it's one season of JV, one season of varsity, 26 maybe games at Kansas and then this year and then AAU and all that summer stuff as well. But I think where his inexperience really shows up is on those turnovers and dealing with those double teams and maybe being a little too aggressive. I mean, he has such a plethora of moves from the perimeter in terms of pump fake drive, uh, really creating off the dribble crossover moves at seven two, two hundred seventy five 275 pounds just don't normally have. But I think it, it he, he does, you know, I think the usage and the inexperience catches up to him in the, the turnovers. But I also think it's a pretty easy thing for not easy, but I think that's a pretty likely thing for him to fix. So, yeah, I think uh, I think his efficiency with his usage and his age and experience, it is certainly an incredible factor. And I agree with you. Once he moves a little more off the ball and you get a guy with a little more creativity creating for him in a pick and roll. I mean, lately they have turned to an Ilyasova uh, Embiid four or five pick and roll, which is great. And I didn't know that Ilyasova really had that in him as a ball handler. But I think the threat of the shooting helps when you replace him with Ben Simmons. And you start really putting maybe another pick and roll threat. Like you mentioned, I think you need another real secondary initiator on the perimeter, a guy like Fultz who can do both. But if you get that along with Ben Simmons, now Joel Embiid is creating far less of his shots. Yeah, I think that efficiency could be really high. You brought up his his free throw attempt rate. It's absolutely ludicrous. It's 58.2 right now. So that free throw attempt rate is measuring free throw attempts per field goal attempt. And considering his field goal attempt rate is, is pretty high as well. He's a high usage guy. You're looking at that. Also, his he's making, I believe it's 77.8 or something like that percent of his free throw attempts, which is massive because that combination for a big man is exceedingly rare. Someone who, A, a big man who shoots free throws is exceedingly rare, but a big man who shoots free throws well and gets to the line a lot, that might even be more of a unicorn than some of the other things that people draw out there. And that can be used well in a lot of their capacities. I expect it to go to go down a little bit. Also, if he develops more of a three-point shot, which I don't know if he will, I don't know how obviously it's better for anybody, you know, you if you, if you can make it, you can take it, that's fine. But that does often decrease free throw free throw attempt rate as somebody who covers the Warriors, I know this very well. But Embiid is great and fascinating because he has more tools in the toolbox not only than almost anybody his age or for anybody his size, but for anybody who has probably ever existed who has played as little basketball as he has. Yeah, those those Hakeem comparisons that I think most casual fans would have looked at as absurd when he came into the league or came up to the draft 
they're not looking nearly as absurd as they should. I mean, he really does look every bit of the generational talent. And you mentioned his three-point shot and maybe developing that down the line. He's shooting like 35% so far. He's shooting about 49% on shots between 16 feet and a three-point line. And I think a lot of times we look at those shots and it's it's frequently referred to as a worst shot in basketball. But I think a couple things for, with Embiid. First of all, I think it, it opens up a real good dribble drive game for him. And, you know, just one or two power dribbles setting up to a, you know, maybe a turnaround in the post or a drive all the way, getting fouled. I think that really opens things up for him. But I think it also bodes very well for his ability to extend that shot out quite a bit and out to the three-point line. I think he has a very good natural shooting touch. And I would be surprised if he doesn't become a consistent three-point shooter down the line. I really wouldn't. That is absolutely insane. But I agree with you. I mean, just the idea that he can be all of those different elements at once, plus being a a solid, probably great defender, is a whole different kettle of fish. And I'm intrigued to see how his development on ball as an on ball player is different and similar to Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Davis, both of whom played a lot more basketball before this point, before they reached where Embiid is. But both of them are really special because of their fluidity and how comfortable they are with the ball in their hands. Embiid is unnaturally comfortable in that way. And the more he can develop, the more the Sixers encourage it the more dangerous he becomes. Yeah, I mean, I think they did a really good job developing his skill level over the two years that he was out. I mean, you looked at him at Kansas, and first of all, they didn't utilize him nearly the same, but I think, I mean, he he shot or attempted a handful of real jump shots in-game while at Kansas. That's a skill that he went for a large portion. That was the only thing he could really do, so you kind of expected him to develop that. But for him to pick that up, and I mean, look, 49% on a mid-range jump shot. I mean, that's something that a, a 10-year vet, that would be a really good number for. So yeah, he took two years off, but he improved at a very high rate. And pretty much every part of his skill, of his offensive skill level. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who is, you always hear stories of him in, in high school where he played his first season in JV at Montverde Academy. And he was very inexperienced and it showed it showed pretty obviously. He was raw offensively and his defensive rotations were late and he didn't really know what he was doing. He was getting by entirely on physical attributes. He came back the next season, transferred to the Rock to get more playing time. He came back the next season looking like Hakeem Olajuwon and it was entirely self-taught. He just went over the summer and said, I'm going to learn these post moves and he watched watched video and video and video and emulated it and his progression from there until where he was when he was going to be the number one pick in Kansas was about as fast of a skill development as you'll see. So I think any part of his offensive game right now, any part where there's a real weakness, you have confidence that he's going to overcome it to some degree because he already has in the past. It's crazy. To think about that, I was looking at it and his jump shot make rate just overall, he's at 37% right now and 34.8. So basically 35 from three. LaMarcus Aldridge, I believe, is at 41. That's not, I mean, that's a a difference. 4% matters, but it's not so egregious. And LaMarcus Aldridge is a reasonable high watermark. Like, it's not like, oh, if he reaches LaMarcus Aldridge, that's a disappointment. That would be remarkable. And right, while having what we hope will be defensive player of the year caliber defense, too. It's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. And as you said, his work ethic is at the point which, I mean, you think about some of the articles that were written while he was out. But his work ethic is at the point that you can reasonably believe that some of those comparative weaknesses will turn into strengths. And also he becomes a game breaker as a center that arguably Towns, Porzingis, all of these players who are justifiably high praised, highly praised, talk about 
because of his defensive ability, this is not an offensive guy who you're going to make it work defensively. This is a defensive guy who can make the offense a strength as well. Sure. And I I think those debates between Towns and Porzingis and Embiid are going to be fascinating over the years because I think, I mean, look, Carl Anthony Towns is, is maybe the best offensive big man prospect I've I've ever seen, or at least I've ever seen since I've been covering the sport at this level. And that that's no small praise considering what Anthony Davis has been able to do. But he's just, his guard-like skills are so advanced that I don't know how you necessarily defend against that. And I don't think Embiid's that. I don't think he's that level of an offensive prospect. I think he's different. He might attract more attention down low. He might end up getting the free throw line more. He might even force defenses to collapse a little bit more. But I don't think his skill levels are ever going to be quite that. Although I hesitate to put any kind of a cap on his upside because of how quickly he's developed over the last few years. But I do think that defense sets him apart. And I mean, we make a lot of excuses for young big men, and justifiably so. It's a very, to read and react at the speed that these defensive big men have to, especially in today's NBA where it's so spaced out and there's so much, you know, spacing in the paint and you have so many responsibilities in terms of rotation, it's really tough to pick up on the fly. But I, he is so far ahead of most pe- most of his peers, whether you're talking 19, 20, 22 year olds. I mean, how many years did Anthony Davis and look, he obviously Anthony Davis obviously didn't have the greatest uh, the greatest supporting cast. But then again, neither does Joel Embiid. How many years did it take for Anthony Davis to have even a top 20 defense? I think this is the first year he's ever done that. And Carl Anthony Towns, I think the Wolves went from 27th last year to 23rd this year. And look, again, his his personnel isn't the best. He's playing a little out of position because they're accommodating Gorgie. But still, I mean, for Joel Embiid to have a top Right now, I think they're ninth overall in a season. I think they're top five in the last month and a half. And like I said, they're about fourth in in half court off half court defense on the season. For him to be anchoring that, it, it, it truly is special. And just watching the game, you can see that it's his athleticism, his tools, his rotations, his overall all around defense, his ability to blitz a pick and roll, which at seven two has to be a terrifying sight for a ball handler, and still be able to recover. Even just his knowledge of how far he can hedge to contest the shot and still get back. It really is. I mean, I, I do think he is at a level to himself in terms of defensive impact among these young big men that are threatened to take, over, take over the league. On top of all of that, using team-wide statistics actually hurts Embiid. It hurts his, hurts his ca- case because he has been by far their best defensive center. Julia Okafor has a defensive rating right now of 109.4. That is distinctly not great. Not yeah. <laughs> New is at 106.8. I expect that will improve with time. Part of it is small sample size. Some of it is personnel. You know, I, I would say, I don't know if you'd agree with this. I would say that, that Embiid plays with better defensive teammates than Nerlens. That is not to say that Embiid plays with great defensive teammates. It's just that they step down both in terms of youth and experience and everything like that when Noel is in the game without, without Embiid. And those parts will also improve with time, whatever they're going to do, unless they make the decision to keep Julia Okafor as the long-term backup at center. But even then, it will be functionally different because they should improve the other talent. Yeah, no, I agree. They should, I mean, perimeter defenders, certainly Embiid right now, he's playing a pretty good chunk of his minutes with TJ McConnell at the point guard. And look, TJ is a pesky defender. He'll fight over a screen. He'll generally be in the right spot. He is. I mean, he's 6'2 with a 6'2 wingspan and really doesn't have NBA athleticism. So you can certainly upgrade that position as much as I like TJ. You can get a more complete defender there. Nick Stauskas is anything but a defensive prospect. He really struggles on that end. 
And Ersan Ilyasova, you can improve there as well. I think Robert Covington is really his only legitimately good defensive player uh, that he's really sharing the court with at a, at a frequent amount. Gerald Henderson is a, a good defender, but he's coming off the bench now. So yeah, I think you can certainly improve personnel. You know, you can go back to the Neurons Noel. I was actually looking at this recently. Part of the problem with his defensive rating right now is that opponents are shooting about 45% from three, which is probably, going back to what you say, it was it's probably a lot of small sample size noise. Now, you look at the three-point attempts, and teams aren't aren't attempting drastically more three-point attempts when he's on a court, and that's usually usually as good or better of a predictor of the perimeter defense and percentages. Percentages, you know, kind of a little little variance related. But the other thing is that they're just not rebounding the ball well. And I think that's very much a function of Neurons, who isn't playing all that well. But that's another aspect where Embiid doesn't struggle. He does have about a 25 or a 26% defensive rebounding rate. The team does rebound well when he's on the court. So it just goes back to, you know, what we've been saying, which is that his overall game and the fact that there are no major weaknesses outside of really turnovers is part of what makes him really special. Right, and that's a similar thing that we talked about with Towns, except that Embiid's defense is way better than Towns's has been, and I praise Towns a lot because of his ability to switch. He was huge in a couple of games late in their season, but early in the season, Towns had the benefit of playing with Kevin Garnett. Kevin Garnett did buoy their defensive stats for a lot of last year, and they've been missing him what, 40 at the time. Yeah, but it also is evidence, we've talked about this before, about how it takes a while for young guys to get better. The institutional knowledge that comes with being a big man and, and communication as well, you get a lot better at those elements as you age. It's part of the reason why players don't peak when they're 22. They peak when they're 25, 26. It gets complicated with big men because the idea that physically you're always downgrading, you're always getting worse unless you're coming back from an injury or getting back in shape. But those elements will get better with Embiid with time just because they have to. Yeah, no, it really is a, a huge learning curve. I, I, I equate being a defensive big man to being a point guard on offense. There's just so sure. much to learn and so much terminology to get down and so many situations that you have to, you know, just get accustomed to and learn how to read and react. It is really unforgiving for a player that is young and inexperienced, which is part of the reason that it's exciting. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. It is something that has become an absolute highlight of every week for me. And there are a lot of different reasons to enjoy Blue Apron. I happen to have a few that are stronger for me, but it really can be a lot of different things. So if you are somebody who enjoys eating great food, Blue Apron is a great way to do that. The ingredients are incredibly high quality and perfectly proportioned. So you don't have to worry about overbuying. You don't have to worry about making a mistake in terms of, you know, if you mischop something or if you do something else, you know, you have exactly what you need and you have the exact instructions on how to on how to do it and how to make it taste excellent. And you don't have any food waste that way. So you have these incredibly high quality ingredients. You have amazing instructions on how to cook it. And you can use that as the jumping off point for future dishes. And I've done this numerous times in my past where I made something, I liked it, and I was inspired to make a twist on it, to do something a little bit different. And that is another great part of Whippern is that you can enjoy it from a from an eating standpoint, but you can also enjoy it from a cooking standpoint. And if you prefer one of those or the other, there's no problem. You get both with Blue Apron. And through this podcast, you can try it out. 
you go to www.blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free, including free shipping, on your first order. I had familiarity, but not that much experience with Wapron or anything like it beforehand, and now it is an absolute highlight. I mentioned that at the beginning, but it's absolutely true. It is something I look forward to. I'm excited about choosing the meals, and then oftentimes I forget in the time between when I choose them and when they come, and then I get excited when they're there, and to make them and to eat them, and it is a great experience, and it's a very reasonable price, especially for the ludicrously high-quality ingredients. So I really hope you check it out, www.blueapron.com slash realgm. Now back to the conversation with Derek. I think this might end up being a nebulous thing, but if you had to make the choice, because I assume that it's going to depend on offers, and if, if I disagree with that, then then correct me, but how would you be thinking about the Jaleel Okafor, Nerwins Noel components of this decision-making process as we are about a month away from the trade deadline? To me, it is an easy decision. I would much rather have Nerlens and his skill set than Jaleel and his skill set. The question to me isn't even so much what you're getting back in return, because I don't think you're going to get very much for either of them. I just think the supply and demand aspect of it is not going to work in your favor. To me, what it really comes down to is Nerlens, and would he buy into a bench role? You know, maybe I don't know if that's 20 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes. I don't know how you can work that out in terms of how much you can have the two of them play together, but would he be okay in a bench role? Would he be okay not finishing every game, because maybe matchups dictate that you want more of a stretch for next Embiid? Would he be okay basically in that role long term? And you have to have some real frank discussions with him. And if you say, look, we'll pay you. We'll give you 20 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it is. But you are going to be coming off the bench. And I think that's real tough for a young 22-year-old kid to accept, especially one who thought he was going to be the number one pick in the draft. Probably should have been at the time. I mean, you can certainly look back and say Giannis, but nobody, nobody was selecting Giannis at number one. Probably should have been the number one pick in the draft if it wasn't for that injury. And has had some reasonable amount of success in the NBA. Uh, and certainly the last two years have been difficult in terms of playing out of position and not getting the minutes. But I think he I think he still looks at himself as a starting caliber center. So it's it really comes down to whether or not he would accept that role long term. And if he would, it's a pretty easy decision for me. They also have so much flexibility financially that it's not that big a deal if they need to pay him more if he's good. You don't want to Agreed. overpay, but the nature of restricted free agency is that by and large, you know, you don't with players who are really talented. Sometimes it doesn't work out because the player isn't as good as people thought, but the Allen Crabs of the world are pretty few and far between. And if that comes to pass, then you make it, maybe you make a different decision. If somebody fully maxes them out, which I totally don't expect, then yeah, maybe, maybe you go through. But also having Joel Embiid gives them the flexibility if Noel's going to at least even partially buy in to play it by ear with Noel, because the worst thing that happens is you need a backup center. I would say Rashawn Holmes can already take that on, depending on what they do with Jaleel. Jaleel can take that on, and you can draft somebody with the expectation that we already have a guy for 30 minutes a game, and yeah, he would fall off if Embiid gets hurt, but that's true of any star. Yeah, no, I mean, you're you're never going to not have a drop-off when you go to your backup, and you're talking about a guy who... Embiid, who could be a top 10 player in the league, you're always going to have that drop off. I completely agree with you. Uh, to me, unless the offers look completely different than what they did over the summer and the early part of the season, I would go in a restricted free agency if Nerlens is willing to buy in, see what offers are out there, see what he would get on the on, on the open, well, not open market, on the restricted market. And if he really wants to leave, then see what you can do in a sign and trade. I don't worry too much about giving up 
whatever small offer they could get at the trade deadline because I do think it's going to be pennies on the dollar. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I'd be happy going in the offseason with him still on the roster. It also helps that it seems like Embiid and Noel have a better personal relationship and that makes it easier for him to possibly buy in. Also with the change in management, that might help as well. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, I think the players generally like the previous management, which is an inter- interesting conversation because it seems like everybody just assumes that that maybe there wasn't any kind of connection there. I don't entirely know what his relationship is with Brian Colangelo. It seems I, I think I remember listening on the when Nerlens went on the podcast with Woj. It seemed kind of adversarial and maybe a little distant. And I think a lot of that is situational in terms of you know they're negotiating and Nerlens is clearly trying to at that time trying to you know, maybe force Colangelo's hand to trade him and get him to a spot where he could get minutes and get that next contract. But yeah, I think the relationship with Embiid is there. I think when Embiid got injured, Nerlens obviously had gone through a very similar thing the previous season. And he had, you know, he really had some advice for Joel on how to try to get through that. So I think there is a pretty good connection there. Anytime you see them on social media going out, they're usually together. Uh, I do I do think that helps. They have more of a connection in terms of the path than most players ever do. And Joel seems like a really nice guy. So you can, you can make that connection as well, just because it's easy if, if the players get along and with Jaleel Okafor, you know, if the price is, is low enough, I'm not completely sure that I would sell on him now just because of the idea that can his value get any lower? I think my biggest concern with keeping all three of them is going to be whether or not, you know, I think it's one thing to say, all right, look, Nerlens. Jaleel, it's early January. Just get us get us through the next six weeks and this will all get better. I think if you're sitting there on February 20th or whenever the trade deadline is and you say, okay, well, we've got to now get through the next two months. And then after that, we've got to get really because the trading period doesn't open up until the draft. You're probably going to have to get here until the draft. I think that's a lot harder of a sell to make. So I think my biggest concern with doing that is the human aspect of it. I agree with you from a, could his value get any lower? I mean, he's been a DNP CD and I think like maybe eight of the last 11 games, he's really fallen out of the rotation. It was interesting at first, you know, Brown played Okafor and Embiid together, kind of let Noel get back into game shape a little bit. And then it was supposed to be their switching and now they're going to try Noel and Embiid together. Well, Noel and Embiid haven't played, I think they've played maybe eight minutes together all season, but it's now been a couple of weeks and Jaleel is still completely out of the rotation. And you wonder whether or not this is still just evaluating Nerlens. And if it is, why haven't they played Noel and Embiid together? I get that you're you're on a winning streak, but if it really was about evaluating, like you'd want to see that pairing. And is this a new reality? And if it is a new reality, then why do you expect to get any kind of value for a guy who you essentially booted out of the rotation? It, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you that it doesn't seem like his value can get lower. So on a, a pure asset standpoint, I do agree that you know, you could maybe hold on to him, maybe see if somebody gets desperate at the time of the draft. You can use him as a piece for something there. But I, I worry about the human side of it and whether you could see see a guy really check out for the rest of the season. The answer to the can his value get lower, the answer is if they do what they've been doing the last two weeks for the rest of the season. For the rest of the yes, season. Yeah. Absolutely it can get lower because then you start to get into a circumstance where it gets harder to justify, where the teams haven't seen him recently and Trading him now versus trading him at the draft, usually at the time of the draft, even if we're talking low first, high second round pick, and I don't even know if his value is there, but just just as idle speculation, teams fall in love with players later than than earlier. And and now a team can say, hey, look, we can see what we have for the rest of the year. He have him under contract. He's still on a really cheap deal. 
And if the if he gets marginalized even further over the course of the year because they functionally choose Nerlens Noel over him, then you go through that standpoint. Now, if they decide to trade Nerlens, which you and I both disagree with, but if they make that decision, you think about Okafor differently because then he's going to get the chance to play. Yeah. You know, you almost wonder, and this is, is a speculation, you almost wonder if they chose Okafor and they're using this opportunity to showcase Nerlens. That to me is the only, from a logistics standpoint, the only one that makes sense because if you're trying to trade Okafor, I mean, I guess the cynic might say that you're helping his value by not showcasing his weaknesses, but I don't believe that. Like he, there's almost no chance opportunity to trade a guy who is effectively out of the rotation. It's very tough. So you almost wonder whether they've kind of tipped their hand in who they prefer. But by the same token, that's just me and you trying to read tea leaves in a crazy, you know, trade deadline season. It'll be it'll be really and I mean I think there's a I think there's a future, um, not a future, but I think there's a scenario where you could see both of them move and you could go with Rashawn as the backup. Uh, I think that scenario is kind of dependent on actually being able to get anything of of value for either of these guys. But I think I think pretty much anything is on the table. I really do. The Sixers also gain leverage in terms of a Nerlens negotiation for a sign-in trade because it is totally legitimately arguable that they would match. When you see that, I mean, sometimes it's the other team just playing into the hands a little bit. I think of the Kings getting Grievous Vasquez to agree to a sign-in trade on Tyreek. They weren't going to match that deal in the first place, but I guess there was a little bit of a legitimate threat. But with Nerlens, they have so much money to spend. As long as it's a reasonable contract, they can make that credible threat. And so probably not going to get the greatest asset in return, but they can get something. And that something could very well be close to what they would be getting offered right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the fact that they're very likely getting lowballed right now, it really does make it a lot easier to justify pretty much any course of action. I mean, it would be um, the, the only real opportunity cost is whatever the, the offer is now. And it just feels like that is so very low. What theoretically would it take for you like would a lot late lottery pick be enough for you to give up on Nerlens now well I mean I, I think a lot of that depends on information that I'm not sure I have in terms of do you think he can be a good soldier coming off the bench judging by what I think their belief is and I don't think they're bought into whether he can you know be a, a good teammate over the course of a next contract coming off the bench the entire time then yeah I, I, I probably would but I, I think, as in, yeah. in terms of pure value, I think Noel could be more valuable than a, a late lottery pick. Absolutely. I have a lot of trouble with that with him. I've been kind of fake trading him to various teams, including the Celtics and the, and the Pace, uh, Blazers. Sorry, not the Pacers. That would be fun, too. But the Pace, about Celtics. two teams that could really use him, though. I mean, the Celtics defense, how they're playing right now, I'm not sure I saw this coming at all. And they could absolutely use a rim protector. It's also less likely than it was before with the changes in the structure that they're going to be able to get that player through anything other than the draft. And I don't know how closely you've been following it, but I don't see that guy, at least in this draft, and who knows for next year. No, it is definitely much more of a guard and wing draft than, you know, maybe some of the previous previous drafts in recent memory. Yeah, I think for a team looking for a run protector, and look, we talk about the overabundance of big men and the supply and demand. But rim protectors are still like they're still valued. You still see them moved around in a league. You still see them given pretty big contracts and you still see teams in need of them. And you listed off a couple right there. You know, I think so much of the Noel situation. I mean, look, if you see a, a guy acting up the way Noel did before the season, you bet on the fact that he will continue to act up and continue to depress his value. Why buy something at 80 cents, 90 cents on the dollar when you think if you just hold this out and you call their bluff? that they can then get a 50 cents on a dollar in a couple months. And I think that made perfect sense. And through December, when Noel then 
you know, he had a blow up where he played eight minutes in a, in a game and, you know, he went off on a tangent that he's not an eight minute pl- per game player. They got to fix this. And that was about the same point where Brett Brown said, look, I'm not even going to try to tell you guys that I'm going to play all three of you in the same game. So I'm going to take chunks of games. And I'm going to say, Okafor, you're going to play Noel, you're on the bench. And then I'm going to flip that. Uh, so I think it was right for them, for other teams to bet on the situation self-destructing. And I think, uh, I think when that is out of the equation, you know, I still think there are going to be some teams that are interested in a guy like Noel, whether that's at the trade deadline or next year in free agency. The Blazers are a great example of why uh, why I'm just structured differently than other GMs because I would be freaking out from a proactive standpoint because they are going to have a lot of trouble filling that hole if they don't fill it now because the free agent market is basically irrelevant for them after this year because they have so much money that's going in with the cap. If they don't get anybody by the draft, then either that pick or Mason Plumley is going to be the guy and they don't have that many other options. So if if I were Neil O'Shea, what I would be saying is we need to have at least a possibility of fixing this. That's what Festus Azili was supposed to be. Right. Festus Azili is not that. That they made a, a worthy gamble. Probably I, I don't know the medical results, but I, I I would like to hope that it was a worthy gamble. It didn't work out, so you have to make another one. They don't have that many options. You talked about how there are a lot of different big men on the market. That is completely true, especially a lot of offense first big men. That are that are sitting there. I was thinking about the rumor that the Magic were dangling Vucevic yep. for that. I mean, it's like, yeah, Nick Nick's a good player. I'm not knocking him in any way, but there are a lot of those guys. There are not a lot of defensive capable players, and there is no one with the defensive ceiling that Nerlens has, and that's why a team would be smart to make a a non low ball offer right now. But I don't know that anybody is. It's information we don't have. Yeah, yeah, and no, it really is. I mean, that, that's why, like you say, with that that ceiling, that defensive ceiling, I would have no problem if I'm the Sixers building a team saying, okay, this is my this is my center spot for the next decade. We're going to anchor a a world class defense, and Noel, you're going to be a part of it. But again, it more information we don't have. Would he be okay with that? It, sure. uh, it, it a lot comes down to the maturity level of really young kids who have been told they're great their entire lives. It's a, that is a part of GMing that I certainly do not envy. I do not at all. Need to step away from the conversation with Derek Bodner for just a quick second to tell you about Audible. My inclination to go through some of the players on the rest of the roster would be how you see them as a part of the next good to great Sixers team. And we'll start younger as opposed to older, but Dario Sarge. I think he's probably a six man. Uh, I think his defensive limitations and his struggles to really get shots off in the paint might limit his upside somewhat. And I think I probably saw him as a six man when he was drafted. You maybe look at him with Embiid, and if he figures out every wrinkle in his game, stylistically, he could be a very good fit. His three-point shot has been up and down throughout the season, but he certainly shows the capability of making that. His passing is really good, even though if maybe he doesn't have a chance to utilize that as much as you would hope, because he's not going to create as much as he did at other levels of competition. And he'll he'll fight. He'll rebound. Uh, he will mix it up inside. You know, I think he's I think he's a bench piece, but I think he's a piece. He could be hurt by Ben Simmons' presence because he is a special he's a special talent who just happens to be on the one of the only teams that has a similar guy. Right. But that isn't the worst thing in the world. You never know with injuries or all of the other things that can beset a team. He's a great fallback, is probably the way that I would put it. And and if he becomes better than that, 
great. Sure. Every, every no, I mean, team if, would love to have a, an option like that on in their kind of an arrow like that in their quiver in terms of how they're figuring out their team. Yeah, I mean, you need in a big man who can shoot, who can pass, who will hustle and can lead a break. I mean, if that's a guy you have coming off the bench and you see maybe a spot start starter, maybe it, he develops enough where in the right situation and, and next to Joel Embiid is certainly the right situation for a power forward who might struggle defensively, maybe in the right situation he can start. You know, I, I think he's going to be a good piece on the team going forward and exactly defining what that is. We'll see. But like I said, I do think he will be a good piece. Nick Stauskas. Uh, I don't think I see Nick as a long-term option, really. Uh, I still think the shooting is too inconsistent for what he brings in the rest of his game. He does create off the dribble, like he has that in him to do it from time to time as a secondary and tertiary ball handler. But he is, I mean, his defense is is really bad. His shooting is still a lot, he, he, it's very inconsistent. And those are two really difficult things to make work. At this point, I see him more as a fourth or fifth guard who could become better than that. And I mean, those those kind of guys are, are sadly pretty fungible in the, in the grand scheme of things. Especially if you don't have that fallback characteristic. You know, the, the best fourth and fifth guards have some sort of special thing, and whether their current team uses it or not, another team can. And as you said, he's not great enough as a shooter. He's at 36.8% from three, 37%. That's good. It's not amazing. It's good. Really falling down. If you look at his splits, I think in October, November, he was up around 47%, somewhere around there, I want to say, over the last two months. 29% in December and then 32% in January. So he's he's fallen down pretty hard lately. And considering the track record before this was not particularly strong, you don't think this is a swoon. You think it, right. it's that it, maybe he's reached the total of, of his expected value. So it's maybe exactly. 30, and it's been kind of right. ironic that he has was moved in the starting lineup right when they kind of took off. And that starting lineup has been incredible as a group. And I think that's kind of bought him some time in the rotation that maybe he otherwise wouldn't, considering how he's playing overall. It's also bought him time that Bayless has been out and that a lot of these Absolutely. other things, like there are players that would squeeze him out of this rotation. They just haven't been been healthy. I'm well, actually, I won't save that. We'll talk about him later. Robert Covington. You know, I think he is absolutely a a rotation piece. And I think if that jump shot comes back, I mean, this was a guy who shot, I think, about 36.5% over about a thousand three-point attempts during his first two-plus seasons in the NBA. He had a cup of coffee with Houston, but really his first two seasons with the Sixers. And then he came out and he was shooting like 29% up until the last couple of weeks and really struggling on the offensive side of the court. But in the meantime, he turned into a really plus defensive prospect, defensive player, a guy who could always force turnovers, but now his you know, man-to-man defense was really good. He was fighting through screens. He was making his rotations. He was crashing the glass. He really turned into a versatile wing defender, which is a uh, big in, in your toolbox. So if his jump shot comes back, I think in the perfect situation, he is a guy who could be a starter in the NBA. And I think that a lot of people are going to look at his season stats. I mean, 37% from the field, 31% from three. And I think if you looked at that, I think it's probably about 35 or 36% over the last month or so. But if his if his shot comes back, I even think he's moving better off the ball, which is a key for a, you know, a role player like him to do. If that shot comes back, I think with that defense he can be a starter in the right spot. And again, with Ben Simmons at the 4 or the 3 depending on what they do with Ilyasova in charge and Embiid at center, I think he could be a a pretty good piece on the team at least for the near-term future. I mean, to me I think if you want to look at Robert Covington as value, 
Despite all of the offensive struggles he had to start the season, Brett Brown never wavered in his minutes and his role on the team. And that's because he was the team's best perimeter defender and the team's most versatile defender. And I think for that, for a guy to struggle like that and still give that kind of consistent defensive effort, still focus on that side of the court defensively, and to show a little bit of progress in terms of moving off the ball and cutting, you know, I think that gives me a lot of confidence that if that jump shot comes back, then I think he's going to fill a necessary role. The Sixers benefit greatly also from the structure of their assets and the structure of his contract because a lot of times a player with his history, you'd be sitting there going, oh crap, well we we should try to, to lock him up to figure these things out. And I wish they had structured the extension system in a way that would make that possible. But I'm actually working on a piece about this for the Sporting News. I don't know when it's going to come out. It might even be months away about for certain players. There is this tactic when they have non-guarantees late in their late in their contract or the team options that you decline the option and make them a restricted free agent. This is actually what Houston did with Chandler Parsons. Didn't work, but that's what they did. Covington does not have that benefit because, because of the, of the seven games. Yep. Because that made him makes it that this is his fourth year. And since this is his fourth year, if they declined that last year, if they whatever they were going to do, I believe technically because they knew that they made his last year non-guaranteed rather than a team option. But there's no benefit of doing it. So they're just going to be like, sweet, we get you for, well, it'll be more than a million dollars because they're raising the minimums, but you're getting him for basically a million dollars. And he is actually hurt financially in a very unusual way. But that helps the Sixers so much because what they can do, and this is what I fully expect them to do, is say, hey... We like Robert Covington. We would love to have him on our team. But if we can get a player through the draft, through free agency, who is better than Robert Covington, we will do so. And if he gets an offer in free agency that is irresponsible for us to match, so be it. We'll let him go. Yeah, no, I agree. It would have been interesting the decision they would have to make this summer if those 34 minutes with the Houston Rockets in 2013-14 didn't happen. But like you said, because of that, he would be an unrestricted. There'd be no reason for them to go down that path and make him a free agent. So yeah, it would, uh, you know, I think he's a guy where you keep on the team. If you don't get a better option, look, I think right now you're, you're prime. What your primary looking for is a, you know, a real pick and roll shot creator on the perimeter, a, a point guard who, like you said, in the Kyrie mold or the Markel Fultz mold, who can be effective off the ball. And then also on the ball, both to lighten the burden on Ben Simmons to maybe play a little, I, I think a, a Fultz or a an Irving pick and roll combination with Embiid and then having Simmons as a secondary ball handler would be really interesting as well. But I think you need that kind of skill set. So maybe you're not focused on the small forward spot or even the shooting guard spot quite as much as you otherwise would be. So maybe maybe Covington does stick around, but I think he's a guy who you can keep around. And if, if you get more talent, then you bump him to the bench. And I think a versatile defender off the bench who can at least be a threat on the perimeter is valuable as well. If Mike Malone refuses to play him starters minutes, I want to figure out a way to get Jamal Murray onto the Sixers because he's just about perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my concern with Murray is is the other side of the court, but certainly offensively, I mean, he has those skill sets that we just talked about. Definitely, TJ McConnell. I feel like he's a nice player to have. They have him on this absolutely ridiculous contract, but again, like Covington, if you can upgrade and they will, great. Oh, I mean, right now he's a starting point guard playing 35 minutes a night, and that's just that's just pretty crazy when you think about it. His role is a second, probably even a third string point guard, but he has improved enough defensively where he does have value. And I mean, there was a lot of debate, and quite frankly, when he came into the NBA, I debated as well. I didn't think he was going to make it at training camp. So for him to have developed to the point where I feel like he is a certainly a legitimate third string point guard, possibly even a legitimate backup point guard, 
it has been uh, it has been fun to watch in that regard. He's just enough of a scorer that it's not completely playing four on five. His he makes good decisions with the ball, and that defense has been a big part in their their turnaround of late on that side of the court. I do think he's an NBA player. Uh, he'll have a role, like you said. If you can upgrade, certainly you're looking to upgrade the starting point guard spot. But if you can upgrade the backup point guard spot, he's on the kind of contract where even if he slots in as a third point guard, you know, he's got a future. If you want to call it best case, if you want to call it worst case scenario, his contract is so good that they can trade him if they end up getting better guys that are better. But presumably you won't yeah. make that decision until after training camp next season or trade deadline next season because the roster spots aren't going to be that pressing for this team. We'll see how it all works out. Yeah. But you can you can make that work. It's a, That's why it's a lot like Covington, because you don't have to make these hard decisions with him. His contract is good enough and he doesn't have control in the matter. So I, I had thought about him just in terms of LeBron's complaining the last couple of days about how they need somebody. TJ McConnell would help the Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of that deli roll. Yeah, he's not, no, he's not as good at it. Like he's he's um, not as good at it as as Del Vidova sure, was. Sure, sure. Like pesky that. defender. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Makes good decisions with the ball in his hands, and I hate saying that because they're both white. But yeah, that, you hate to compare it. But sometimes it does it does fit. Right. So okay. So there are a couple other guys we'll do a little bit quickly. TLC Luo Cabarro. He's come along nicely. Uh, he like has come along nicely. He has two things going for him. He's really quick on the perimeter and really good length. So I guess it's going to be three things. And he gives a lot of effort defensively. And those three things generally get you in the rotation. And I think the Sixers started off the season, and they probably expected him to spend a little bit more time in the D-League, maybe not play all that much. But his defense started to become pretty obvious. And he forced, really, Hollis Thompson out of the rotation, caused him to really get waved. And, I mean, the shot is, it's a little bit hit or miss, but I think it's been a little more hit than I would have expected it to be. He has shown some ability as a cutter, which could get really interesting when Ben Simmons comes back. And he can make an occasional good decision with the basketball in, in terms of his passing. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And clearly, his ball handling needs to continue to improve. His three-point shot needs to be more consistent, and he needs to maybe refine it just a little bit to get it off a little bit quicker. But that quickness on the perimeter, that defense, that effort, and that ability to get up and down the court— you know, I think he is. Uh, I think he was a pretty good find that late in the draft. Agreed. I'm a fan. The benefits are there, and if he can become better, then especially if his jump shot can be reliable, then you start to think about him as a starter. But the type of player that makes a team better. Yeah, I love a good pesky perimeter defender who has the physical tools to to really make things difficult for the opponent, and he has that. Yeah. Rashawn Holmes still has two more non-guaranteed years after this year, which is just ludicrous. And I remember that was that was a Brett Brown quote, right about how he, how he felt bad for Rashawn Holmes. I feel bad for Rashawn Holmes too, but I think this is going to work out in his favor. Yeah, I think. I mean, he played I think about eighteen minutes last night. For that, he had played five minutes in the last forty days. Wow! And that is really tough for a young kid who, quite frankly, whenever he's put on the floor, he's produced. And I think part of the reason they may be taking him for granted. It is because they almost know what they have in him, which sounds a little bit a little bit weird. But I mean, this is a guy who he really impacts the game pretty consistently offensively with his energy, with his athleticism, with his touch around the rim. You know, he he's a guy that's easy to slot in as a backup big. So you look at it and you say, all right, we have a half a season to figure out this Noel Okafor stuff. We're going to concentrate on that, but we still feel confident in Rashawn down the down the line. Uh, I mean, he is averaging seven points and you know, 15 minutes of play, 
shooting 53% from the field. Usually high high percentage looks, but I mean, he has the athleticism to get those, especially when you add a guy like Ben Simmons in the mix. And I think Ben, ben is a, a player who should help perimeter guys like Covington get open looks. Maybe even a guy like Stauskas, who, you know, like we said, not exactly the highest expectations of, but anytime you can get more open looks, that's good. But also a guy who can help big men because he can play a pick and roll as a ball handler because he does have that creative passing and because he can force a defense to, you know, pay attention to him. He should help Rashawn a lot as well. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And I'm excited to see how all that works out. I wanted to ask you a little bit about Ilyasov and Henderson. Both have been productive, successful players on this team, but also can easily be supplanted by improved talent should they get that either through the draft or through free agency. Would you consider trading Ilyasova for the right thing, or is it just a perfect situation to leave it the where it is and assess it after the season? And then how are you thinking about Gerald Henderson this season and beyond? I would consider trading Ilyasova. I don't think Brian Colangelo will. Uh, I think he very much did acquire him, trade for him, because they had interest in keeping him around long term. I mean, he does, he fits incredibly well with Joel Embiid. Uh, the two of them, I, I mean, when they're, when they have a start, when those two start together, I'm pretty sure the Sixers have a winning record at this point, which is anytime the Sixers have a winning record in anything is, is pretty remarkable. It's tough because you have Ben Simmons, who we talked about earlier. There is some benefit to playing him at the four defensively. You have Dario Sharch, who really can only defend the four. So that makes it a little tough to have all, it almost feels like in order to keep Ilyasova and his fit with Embiid, you have to compromise one of your other young assets. And compromising Dario is probably not the end of the world. It, like we said, he, he could very well be a backup when all is said and done anyway. But compromising both Dario and Ben is a little bit more questionable. And I think this is a situation where it probably makes sense. I mean, look, Il- Ilyasova's been on four teams in the last, what, year and a half? Some, something like that. The market is pretty well set for Ilyasova, and he's playing better now. You know, he's pretty much having a career year, and we can get into a discussion on whether or not that's because he fits so well with uh, with Embiid. I saw an interesting stat from Coach Nick on, on B-Ball Breakdown. He did a video of the starting lineup recently. And in that starting lineup, I think Ilyasova had like a 32% usage rate or something, something absolutely absurd. But he's getting more open looks than he usually does. He's shooting 39% from three, averaging 15.3 points per game with the Sixers. In only 27 minutes, he's playing He's playing strong ball. You know, but you really want to see Simmons come back, see how that dynamic changes, see whether or not you can have Simmons defending a three for a decent portion of the game, and then I think make, make the decision in the offseason. To me, I think what they'll do is keep him at the deadline and then figure out what to do when they have a little bit more information. This is absolutely shocking. When you said it, I had to look it up. Embiid and Ilyasova together, 104.9 offensive rating, 94.8 defensive rating, plus 10.1. And that's, that's probably a decent amount of minutes at this point, right? Yeah, it is. It's about as many minutes as they played separate. So it's 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 pretty close. So uh, it's about, actually, it's more. And then when Embiid is playing without Ilyasova, which, again, largely aligns with earlier in the season, it you know, you, these aren't equal samples for a lot of different reasons. 97.8 offensive rating, 104.1 defensive rating, negative 6.3 net rating. There you go. So, I mean, but it does coincide. Like, they've been playing those guys together whenever other things have been going better, when they figured out other parts of the rotation. But still, it's something. No, I mean, it, it, even even people who may not want Ilyasova around long-term, I think, recognize that he has played well and that his skill set is really important around Embiid, which is going to make the decision in the summer really interesting. Uh, it is a, it is not the easiest decision to make. I think Ilyasova is a guy who 
is going to get paid a little bit this summer. I think how well he ages is going to be interesting to watch in the next few years. And there could be a, a scenario where that contract comes back to bite you, both because maybe you want to play Ben Simmons in a different role, maybe because Dario Saric develops maybe more than you think. There's a lot of different angles on this decision. But I think one thing I can feel confident is saying, and, and I mean, there's also the fact that Ilyasova might just be, and we talk about how well he's playing with Embiid, he might also just be riding a hot stretch. And he certainly struggled of late over the last week or two. Came out of it a little bit in the last few games, but before that was struggling a little bit. So I think you keep him on the roster just to see whether or not his hot play to start the season is a little bit of, or start his Sixers career, not the season, is a little bit of a mirage as well. I think there's a lot of reasons. And like I said, look, I don't I don't think the market for Ilyasova, even with this good play, is all that strong. I do think you probably keep him, see what happens the rest of the season, see what happens in the summer, and make your decision from there. A weird element that actually should factor into the Sixers' decision-making if they're being proactive is the crazy dynamic that's going on with the Kings pick and the pick swap. Because yeah. what happens in this case, if we say that the, the Kings are based, even if you want to argue that the Kings are what they are, and so they're going to be, 538 right now projects them to be at 32 wins. Like, I think that is a possibility that losing Rudy Gay does not make them worse by as much as many are anticipating. But if you take that as like a reasonable best case, then the Sixers, you know, they, they might not beat that. There's a very real chance that they won't. But if they do, the downside is not very high because they can swap picks. So what they can choose to do is go after all of these goals kind of at once. Make sure that you're getting enough time for Ben Simmons when he comes back. Make sure you're getting enough time for Dario just throughout all of these changes. And Ilyasova, sure, he fits into that. He's not mutually exclusive with those guys. There are points of conflict at, at various junctures, but not that many. And what I think is the is the end game, if they're willing to do it, is kind of be, if he can be a little bit patient and free agency. I mean, if somebody makes him into responsible offer, so be it. But if they don't, I think it would be smart to do something similar to what Dallas has done with Dirk Nowitzki, which is give him a lot of money for one year, and maybe you do a non-guarantee on the second year, maybe you don't do that at all, and you just say, hey, we'll kind of keep doing this with you as long as it works out, and then once it doesn't, we'll do that, but you have to wait until later in free agency because you don't want to flop off five, ten million, whatever money it is at the beginning because that takes away your flexibility. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see what kind of long-term offers Ilyasova does get, if he even gets any. I mean, you probably have a better read on that situation than I do. But it's an, it's another season where there's some silly money hanging around and teams that wouldn't otherwise have cap space will. So that will, uh, I mean, I think as somebody, you know, if I were a fan going into the season, I would be nervous just because of the weird cap dynamics at play. But no, I agree with your, I agree with your philosophy almost entirely. Uh, I mean, I think if Ilyasova could realistically get something of significance at this deadline, I think it would be an interesting conversation just because his timeline doesn't necessarily match up with the rest of the teams, although with the way Embiid is making this team competitive much earlier than I think anybody really anticipated, I'm not sure I necessarily know what the timeline is anymore. I think at some point you have to look at it and say, there's a very real chance this team could make the playoffs next year. Maybe we should really start factoring that in. But yeah, there's I, I love these decisions and these debates where there are good theories and good thoughts on both sides of the argument, and I think this is definitely one of them. It is. And a lot of it does depend on that price. You know, I don't think anybody's going to give you a late first for him. Like just realistically, that doesn't really right. make and much sense. At that point, if you're talking about seconds, why? Like what's really, I mean, I get when you're in the middle of the quote unquote process and you want to take as many second round picks in the hopes that you hit on one or two of them, but you're at the point now where it makes sense to put 
I mean, quite frankly, real NBA players on the court with Embiid and make a run. You can't, you don't have the roster spots to make that kind of philosophy work anymore. So I think your approach has to really change. The one exception to that would be if there were a team that ha- that is not one of the five worst teams, but that has a pick that will probably be 31 to 35. Those could be great for the Sixers to have, especially considering they've gotten a little bit asset poor in terms of second round picks. The Ish Smith trade, which you and I have talked about before, not this time, was like kind of made them a little bit asset poor in that capacity. They also don't have a ton of roster spots, so it's not the biggest deal in the world to be without them right. because they have so many guys that have come over. And I think they still have the Knicks second round pick for like a hundred years straight or something like that. Something like that. I think they have it for like legitimately five years straight, which is funny. (laughs) So where are you in terms of the approach for the season? Is it basically just win as much as we can see, see what we can make it out while developing the young guys? Because the pick swap takes away a lot of the negatives of that at this point. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I don't think you can really game plan towards trying to get Markel Fultz. Like, I don't think, I think as long as Joel Embiid's healthy and playing and playing regularly, I don't think you can be and one you of the three worst teams in the league. for that purpose. Right. You would never, right. that's that not a decision anybody makes. No, you don't, even, you don't even bring that up to him. I mean, there's no way you take a guy who didn't play basketball for two and a half years and even ask him to do that. So I think as long as he's playing, he is right now too good of a player to truly tank with. Like, I don't think you're going to end up with a worse record, certainly than Brooklyn. I mean, I think they're running away with the best lottery odds or the Lakers, or Phoenix, or even Miami. I don't think you can probably even throw Dallas in that mix. I'm not sure you can realistically compete with those teams right now. Maybe Miami, it depends on how they view the rest of the season and the the roster moves they make going forward. But I think it would be really tough to get, not a top three pick, but I think it would be really tough to end up with one of the worst three records. So I think you're right. You're looking at the Sacramento Kings. I think you go in and say, you know, I think a, a playoff run is overly optimistic. I think they're five and a half games back. Certainly Indiana and Chicago don't exactly strike fear, but I do think they're better teams right now than the Sixers. But I think you go in and you say, all right, let's let's ride and be. Let's see where he goes. Let's integrate Ben Simmons. Let's see what kind of difference he makes. If that means playoffs, great. Get these young kids some experience. You don't have the real downside because you're still going to end up with the Kings pick who could be in the you know, six to eight range, depending on how the rest of their season goes. You could still get the Lakers pick, depending on how the lottery shakes out. You still, you know, if the Kings end up with the six worst record, you could still have a 20% chance at a top three pick or whatever that represents. Uh, there is a lot of, you might not end up in the Markel Fultz sweepstakes, but you still have a chance to get a really good player, maybe even two really good players in this draft. You're really at this point playing with house money. The way I would frame it is you do what you're going to do, and there is the expectation that teams will fall past you. Whether you start jumping teams in addition is a separate question, but their expected value is higher than some teams. We don't know exactly who that is yet. You brought up a good list of them because some of them will, in the near term, choose to just start taking their foot off the accelerator because they should. It's a good decision for Dallas to to push down. If Dallas can get the, right. the second or third worst record, they should do that. Straight up, they should do that. And if the same thing with the Lakers, they have the strongest incentive of any of these teams, especially considering the other obligation with the with the Magic, you know, that if they if they keep their pick this year, they don't have to give the Magic a first either, which is huge. And then Miami, basically the same decision. This is the last year before their pick is protected with the whole deal with Goran Dragic with his with his rights to the Suns, like with that with that whole trade. Almost all of those teams. So the the Sixers can go with effective ambivalence towards what everybody else does. And most teams can't do that. 
And the pick swap is what makes that possible. And who knows? You get two bites at the lottery apple in all likelihood. I don't think the Sixers are going to make the playoffs. You get two low bites. Maybe one of them works. Maybe none of them works. That's fine. You know, that, that there's not a problem there. The question I want to ask you, because as you are a draft guy, and I've been thinking about this a little bit for the Sixers, I haven't fully recalibrated to their new expectations, but are there players in that 6 to 10 range, or later, of course, that you have an interest in? Oh, well, I think there's a lot of players in the top 10 that I have an interest in. Back to your point, I don't know if I've really recalibrated to the change expectations as a guy who covers a team, to the change expectations of the teams and the fans. Uh, it is a, it is uncharted territory to not be talking about a, a top three worst record, you know, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of guards. I think, you know, I think, it, first of all, I think two guys that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think on the radar because of the positions they play and the Sixers big men. Uh, but I think Markinen and Jonathan Isaac power forward from Arizona, seven footer can really shoot might set a, an NCAA record for a seven footer in terms of shooting and the small forward slash power forward. If he ever frame ever fills out. For Florida State, I think those two guys are really interesting in that range. It could be really good fits. You know, I think Markinen, because the comparison that's always going to come up now with him is going to be with Kristaps, and I don't think that's fair. I don't think he is the athlete Kristaps is. He doesn't have the length Kristaps does. And I don't think he is the defensive player, certainly the weak side defender that Kristaps is. But he can shoot, and he can shoot off a screen. He can shoot well past NBA three-point range. He can shoot off the dribble a little bit. He is going to be in a real—I mean, we talked about how— good of a fit Ilyasova is and what that's done for the offense. You brought up those numbers where there are plus 10 net rating in like 450 minutes, which is absurd. I mean, I can't, I, I, if I would go back all through all the play data and find a lineup that's plus 10 for the Sixers in that amount of minutes, it would take many years going back in the past. But I think those, those two, the skill sets are so important in terms of how they mesh that if I'm looking at maybe my second pick, and Markinen is there, I think you have to kind of consider it. And Isaac, different reason, but I think his defensive versatility and the playmaking and the decision-making between him and Simmons and the way they could really switch on the perimeter and the way that they could force turnovers, I think I think that would be a really interesting pairing too. And then you go to maybe the the more obvious guys in the 6 through, six through 10 range, the Malik Monks and the shooting that he would provide. I mean, we talked about how Ben Simmons allows you to be a little more creative in what you look at as a lead guard or a two guard. You know, Malik Monk's undersized for the two doesn't have real point guard instincts at all, but he can shoot the ball and he can shoot off the ball. He can shoot coming off of a screen. He's even shown some ability to shoot off the pick and roll. He would be a really good fit. And I think there's a, a, a threat that maybe a team drafting Malik Monk in the top five, because he's not really a great defensive prospect because he doesn't do much really outside of score. He, uh, two and a half assists, two and a half rebounds. Doesn't really force all that many turnovers. He's kind of, he's a scorer and he's playing that role well, but I think a lot of teams would want a little bit more than that in a top five pick. But I think it with the Sixers and the fact they have those two focal points in Embiid and Simmons could be that right spot for him. Frank Tilakina, I can't say I've pronounced that a name enough in person that I know whether I said that right, but a really interesting 18-year-old point guard, 6'5", good defensive profile, and he's shooting the ball well, shooting well off the ball. And I think he's a guy that you really look at and he could be a real good fit. You know, I think there's there's a bunch of really good options in that range. And obviously you then have the upper echelon prospects and the Dennis Smith, the Josh Jackson, who doesn't really fit well with the Sixers, but I think is such a good prospect that 
it's something you might have to overlook for the time being. Markel Fultz would be a, a, a dream fit, even if his defense is still leaving something to be desired. Lonzo Ball is another really interesting one. I think there's I think there's a world where Lonzo Ball could disappoint someone because he's so ineffective in the half court. But if he can be the really transition point guard and then more of like a half court off the ball player and he's shot the ball really well off the ball, then I think he fits in well too. So I think it'll be interesting to see, A, who falls, because I, I don't think the top of the draft, and, and Dennis Smith, I didn't even talk about Dennis Smith, um, because we're more focusing in the 6-10 range, but you have to you have to throw throw him in the mix too. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the 6-10 through 10 range of this draft develops, because I think there's a lot, once you get past Fultz at number one, I think he's pretty strongly entrenched as the number one prospect, but once you get past him, I think there could be you know, a lot of what's in the eye of the beholder. And I think this could be a relatively difficult draft to project in terms of, you know, how it's going to shake out. You know, a lot of times you see unpredictable drafts because there's just not much, not much depth. I I think last year was a pretty good example of this where there's not much separation because there just aren't that many high level prospects. I think this could be one of those years where there's a pretty decent amount of high level prospects. And because of that, there's not much separation and that can make it really fun to watch. It's going to be a blast because there are a lot of players who I can see specific teams and general managers falling in love with, and that totally changes this di- these dynamics because that could, that opens the door for trades. It opens the door for surprising picks, depending on how the lottery turns out. I group them in a couple of different classifications. For me, you have, and I don't think there's as much of a separation between these two guys as others. Jason Tatum and Jonathan Isaac. I think both of them. A, you you have two different parts of this. One, I think both of them would be reasonably good fits with Ben Simmons. Hopefully, either that guy or Ben can get a little bit better with their jump shot, but I think it'll work out. I like I like John Isaac a lot. And also, like Josh Jackson, they're so good that you don't even have to draft them on fit. You just draft them because you think they're going to be good and you can make the rest of it work out. Yeah, I mean, Jackson is... I mean, he, it would be tough, such a tough decision. I think right now, and I don't... I'm kind of weird. I don't really even have a ranking right now because I kind of... I think people are too slavish to their rankings at this point in the year. It's the exact same reason why I don't believe that they should have top 25 rankings in football or basketball for the first six weeks of the season. I mean, I I said this, I was on Sam's podcast, but I really do. I found myself doing it. I'll set a ranking really early in, you know, early December and I'll find the second half of the season subconsciously really trying to justify my ranking. And that's not what you should be doing. So I spend really up until... February, just watching players, getting a, uh, an idea of what they can and can't do, getting an idea of what I want to see from them in the second half of the season, listing out my concerns, listing out what I'm confident in translating. And then later on in the season, I'll go through and I'll, I'll actually start putting putting them in order because I think that's a lot more fluid than we we really think it is. And I think when we try to set a baseline too early, we move off of that baseline far less than we think. So I think I try to wait very long to set that baseline and then I'll, I'll make micro adjustments as I get more information. But I, I just, it's, it is an interesting class. And I think right now, having said that, I think right now, Josh Jackson would be my second. Certainly if I'm just looking at the guys and strengths and weaknesses and projecting what I think they'll be in the NBA, he's probably the guy I have the second most confidence in. And that off the ball defense is, is very good on the ball defense. He certainly has the tools to be very good. His decision-making, his playmaking, his his one-on-one scoring, he can do all of it, but he's shooting like 27% from three. I don't really have a whole lot of confidence in that jump shot. That would be tough because he's such a poor fit in terms of that jump shot and such a good fit in terms of everything else. It would be a, you know, he's one of those guys I think I would take because he is such a good prospect, because he does do so many things well, and just hope that he can be an outlier in terms of that shot improving. 
if Ben Simmons works, I love the fit of Malik Monk there too. Yeah. Basically, I, I've had we talked before at the be- early and early on in this podcast about the idea of how having Ben Simmons opens the door for other players. I feel like my my the closest comparison that I have for Malik is that he's Monte Ellis with a jump shot and a better attitude. And okay. that player should defend is good. That's yeah. a really good basketball player who should defend point guards. And Ben Simmons allows that to work. So that I, I would be really excited about it. It's not perfect, but I think it could work. No, I mean, that's what we spent a good chunk of the first half of this podcast talking about is the flexibility a guy like Simmons gives you because he gives you that point guard ability and that point guard role in a non-standard position. Uh, I, you know, I agree with you. I think a guy like Monk could succeed or fail based on where he is and what he's asked to do. And being in a situation like the Sixers where he wouldn't be tasked with really initiating the offense so much, I think that could be a really good spot for him. Along the lines of my own thinking about the Sixers point guard stuff, I was looking through the free agent listings a couple of days ago, and then again just now, and if they don't get one of those big guys, you know, Dennis Smith, Markel, or Alonzo, probably I would say that's the top group, and I have separations between them. I have Fultz above the other guys. I would give a, first of all, you do a big offer to all the best guys, you know, you, you Gordon Hayward, obviously. If you can get Gordon Hayward, you get him. KCP is a wonderful fit for a lot of different reasons, but I would love to see the Sixers make the Jazz really uncomfortable by throwing a lot of money at George Hill, because even though he's older, he would be a wonderful fit in the short term, and they don't have to worry as much about the long term if they if they even could if they can pay him enough where they can just like close to max him out next year and then have it descend. That might be perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think I think before this season, I would have said you're crazy, and I would have said that very you know as nicely as I could because I like you a lot. But I think the timeline was so far off that you look at it and you said that it just doesn't make sense. But I think now with the way the Sixers are playing, and like I said, the way that Embiid looks like he has them competitive in ways they really shouldn't be competitive. And yeah, maybe you sign George Hill and he starts declining as you really get into contender status. I think that's absolutely fair. But if you sign George Hill and next year, I mean, could you look at 40 wins? Could you look at 45 wins with George Hill and the impact he's made? Over the last few years, and in Indy and in Utah now, you add that impact to Ben Simmons and a second year of Joel Embiid and one or two more, you know, targeted free agent acquisitions that are are good fits with that core. Could if you could win forty five games and make yourself a destination and still have max cap space? It's one thing to have cap space; it's another thing to have cap space that people will take. So I think you look at George Hill, and maybe he's the type of guy who will make it more likely that that true big free agent hit will actually consider you and take you seriously. I think with the, what you're seeing with Embiid and the difference he's made in this team at a rate that I think nobody really expected, I do think you can start looking at moves like that. And like I said, I think before the season, I would have called you crazy for suggesting that. And now I think it's very viable. That might be the best encapsulation of how wild the last month has been. That crazy. crazy. The, the inconceivable, the bad idea is now plausible. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the best tactic, but the Sixers have so many other options. And the other reason why the Sixers can think this way and other teams can't is because let's say they don't get the Lakers pick this year. They have two assets that are that are completely separate from their own performance that will both probably be good. One is if they don't get it this year, the Lakers unprotected pick in 2018. The second is the Kings unprotected pick in 2019. If Embiid is as good as he has been, I would expect that the Sixers pick will be lower in the draft 
than either of those. So you don't want to... I, want, I don't want to say process it up because I think Sam Hinkie would think this exact <laughs> same way. You don't want to sap, focus on your draft pick in those years when you have those other things to fall back on. You go more like what the Celtics have done and you do your own thing and you hope that those teams suck. That makes it much less consequential to spend now as opposed to actually what the Lakers did when the Lakers tried to spend their way out of their pick but couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean you you've graduated from the point where you really have to where you're 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 hitching your future success to sucking. Like you've graduated from that point. And like you said to be in a spot, you know, let's say they go your route, they sign a guy like George Hill, which it, who knows whether that's actually feasible, but it's a good name because it it seems like it shouldn't be something you consider because he's going to be 31, but because of where they are, you do. Let's say they do that. They're winning 40 between 40 and 45 games based on the backs of Embiid becoming a dominant player and Ben Simmons becoming his, you know, really his running mate. You're winning that that volume of games, and now you have unprotected picks from lottery teams in two consecutive seasons. I mean, that to me has always been the most impressive part of what Sam Hankey and his crew did. The very beginning part of it and what they did with Noel and taking the injured Noel and taking the injured Joel Embiid, that to me was just not being risk adverse. Like that was that well, that was having a real stomach for risk and uncertainty, and I think I think you get a lot of credit for that because I think uncertainty and fear drive a lot of bad decisions. But really, when the the really wise decisions they made was setting up the second part of the rebuild, and it'll be I mean it's still the tractors will say oh nothing's happened, there's no guarantees. Well, a year ago there was no guarantee with Embiid, and here we are. He's changed the course of the franchise. There's no guarantee they'd get the number one pick, but they did. So I think you have to be a little bit willing to acknowledge that those picks still aren't a guarantee, but also recognize the fact that they could be really special in how they set you up in the future. And understanding that they're only part of the ways that this team can build and can get better. And understanding that there is a benefit to being good, even if it takes away some of your potential talent because of the value that comes from that success. I've talked about this a little bit in terms of the Bucks, that early in the year, when I thought they weren't going to be good without Chris Middleton. I thought this was a year to kind of turtle under and just kind of let it let it happen so you can get that other guy, which I still believe the Bucks need in order to reach their maximum potential. I had, that part of it has not changed. But once you reach a certain threshold of quality and the pick isn't going to be good in the first place, the benefits of being better far outweigh the small difference in pick, even in a draft like this where the top 10 is pretty good. Once you get out of the top four or five, I think that logic always holds universally. I mean, it's something that it's very context specific. You know, like if the Sixers make a playoff push and it's because of Embiid and it's because of Simmons coming back and it's because of those guys just elevating you to a level maybe quicker than you would have expected. That's very different than, say, Evan Turner and Thaddeus Young and Spencer Hawes and all those guys pushing you to a to a first round exit. And it's the same thing with Giannis. The fact that Giannis has exceeded any and all reasonable expectation and is thus driving a playoff push, you know, it's uh, there's a lot more to be gained from that. And I think the Sixers are in that position as well. And like you said, the fact that they've now decoupled that kind of progress from future draft assets is a really good position to be. It's like, it's like the Boston Celtics, but with really high level potential franchise and era defining players. So it will, uh, and I don't think the assets are necessarily as high. Like I think those Brooklyn picks are more valuable than the Lakers and the Kings pick, but you're at least, it's a, uh, it's a similar philosophy. It's a similar philosophy. And I would argue that the pieces that the, the Sixers already have in terms of future value 
are better than what the Celtics have. Oh, sure. I mean, there's there's Danny Ainge would give up quite a big chunk of his roster to have Joel Embiid. That's that I'm I'm pretty confident in saying. It's remarkable. It's an amazing thing. Anything else you feel like we need to discuss? Do you want to talk about the prospect of Drew Holiday? <laughs> that would be that would be an ironic twist of fate. It'd be wonderful. Uh, I, it would be one. I love and I, I love Drew. He was a really good guy. Guys, really easy to root for. His defense would fit in well. His pick and roll play would fit in well. He can he can shoot off the ball that would fit in well. There are some parts for his game that I've always been a little bit disappointed. Never really developed his ability to get the line. He settles for mid-range shots a little bit too much and you would want your 2017 point guard to do. But he is a very good player and a guy who could be a very good fit with Embiid, with Simmons, but a guy who I would be very concerned with his injury history and the next contract he's going to sign. Still only 26, I think, some, some somewhere around there. But, uh, I mean, that injury concern would be, would be huge. Right, and that's why I would go with George Hill over right. drew if the options were and their their contracts aren't going to be equal but you know just, just the idea that george hill has the worries about being on the court but the when healthy fit is just about perfect right yep no i agree i mean george, george hill is a he he's a guy who has continued to get better with age and continues to be underrated and i think maybe that's finally changing this year in utah you know outside of that age he is he is an absolutely perfect fit and that is exactly why Utah, if they're not going to renegotiate and extend Derek Favors, should be throwing that money at George Hill right now as opposed to risking it by having him go into the offseason. Yep. Yep. Anything else you want to discuss? I think it's pretty good. I mean, it's an hour and a half about the Sixers. I think uh, you and I could probably talk for, for way longer. I'm not sure how much demand there would be for that. But no, I, th- I think we covered it. Yeah, I, th- I think we did too. You'd be surprised at what the demand is. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that sort of a thing. And the Sixers are a situation that... Speaking as more of a, a broad scale writer, though, I mean, of course, you, you watch everybody as well. There is so much interest in not only this team, but what they're doing long term, because it is such a different situation. Uniqueness does not have degrees, so it is not more or less unique than anything else, but it is definitely unique. Yeah, I mean, just being down there every night and watching the fans react and watching the reaction on social media and the league really starting to pay attention. It is a, it is definitely a welcome change from previous seasons. They need to be on national TV so much next season and ideally flex them into a couple of games the rest of the season. Well, they did. Uh, Friday's game against um, Houston has been flexed. Excellent. But they should just keep doing it. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. It's, I think it's a little tough for them because of the Embiid uncertainty. But yeah, no, when, when he's playing, I've been dealing are, with that with my league pass match. column. Like I do a weekly league pass <laughs> column. And so I sit there and I have one screen is the NBA schedule. And then for various moments, the second screen is the Sixer schedule. And I'm trying to predict which games he's going to sit. And so it's like, okay, these ones go on. These ones don't go on. But it's, yeah, that it's, is one of the most frequent questions I get. And I wish I knew you can take educated guesses on the first half of back to backs. But uh, it is a, it is a source of contention for Sixers fans as well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek Bodner for taking the time to come on. You can read his 76ers work at Philadelphia Magazine. You can listen to him talk about the Philadelphia 76ers on Sixers Beat, which is a podcast which is actually now part of the CLNS Radio family. You can check it out at CLNS Radio as an app on whatever platform you have I, I believe it's on ios and android you can find real jam radio and numerous other great podcasts there including sixers beat and you can and should follow him on twitter at Derek bodner nba d-e-r-e-k-b-o-d-n-e-r-n-b-a love talking with Derek. i uh, kind of wish we could do it more 
and we maybe maybe we can at some point. But the Sixers in particular this year are an absolutely fascinating situation. I mean, there's so many different angles that we went into with this team, and it felt like there were more that we could have done if we had really had more time with it. So I hope you enjoyed that part. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope to have more like this, and I had the one with Kale Schoenard recently, and bouncing between these different topics of the whole NBA and smaller things. Hope to have a tears podcast out next week. I am really trying to do that every month and then working through a lot of the other storylines that are going around the league. So much interesting stuff right now. Thanks again to our sponsors for this episode, Blue Apron, the phenomenal food delivery service, blueapron.com slash real GM. You can get three meals for free, including free shipping and audible, which is a, a, a service that I just find so amazing in terms of audiobooks and, and other content. I'm mostly on the audiobook side, but there's so much beyond that that they have in terms of comedy and many other things. So you can go to www.audible.com slash try now and you can get a free trial, which includes an audiobook. And I think you'll really enjoy it as much as I have. I'm still in the process of listening to Bruce Springsteen's audiobook, Born to Run, which is fantastic. And I recommend it. I'm not even the biggest fan of his music, but I've really enjoyed hearing his life story told by him, which is one of my favorite things about many Audible projects. Not all of them, but many Audible projects is that it is told by the person who did it. And a lot of them are talented readers in that in that form. So if you want to support the show, of course, you can check out those sponsors. Really do appreciate that. But you can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe and download every episode that is particularly useful with a show like Real Jam Radio, which comes out whenever it's available for me. You know, it's not always a set day of the week. So if you subscribe, then you'll never miss it and you can check it out and download it. It is a great way to support every podcast that you listen to because that is a metric that matters really no matter what way you're counting it. How many people actually download your show is something that really does help. So thank you to everybody. Who listens? If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny Larue, NBA at gmail.com. I really do read everything and respond to what I can. And you can also reach out at Danny Larue on Twitter, D A N N Y L E R O U X. It's the best way to make the show better. And that is always so important to me. And, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but I always do my absolute best and we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. It's always an absolute pleasure. I'm so happy to do it every week. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 